We were able to hear from other residents in Montana and the devastating effects of gravel pits that have happened in their communities, wells going dry, issues of non-compliance by the contractor going unregulated for a long period of time. So we got to hear about their stories. Does this have long lasting effects in our valley, not just to the animals and the water and the air, to the human beings. I, I really feel like it's a public health, a community health issue. The people who live nearby have been taken out of the equation. Their concerns have just been steamrolled. I just can't believe the people who claim to care about property rights went along with this scheme. Welcome to the Stories for Action podcast, where we speak with folks taking bold actions for a thriving planet for all. Our aim is to provoke productive dialogue, elevate community voices, and provide calls to action to help you find your role for positive impact. I'm your host, Laura Tomov. Today, we're talking about gravel pits. I know, I know, maybe you never thought it would be a compelling issue, but when you hear about the impacts and just how much this could affect you, your health, your water, the wildlife around you, and how recently passed laws in Montana just made it that much harder for you to do anything about it, I think you'll see why we all need to be talking about this issue a lot more. We'll be speaking with professionals who are directly involved with advocating for the public's rights in this issue, as well as two residents who now find themselves with an operation proposed in their neighborhood in Arlee, Montana, and who are actively trying to navigate the headaches of taking action from a grassroots level. This episode has great information to let you know the basics of the issue, changes with the new laws, and hopefully help guide you in how to take action if you find yourself in this situation, or better yet, how to take action now to prevent the current system from continuing to operate as it does. This episode is great for legislators and Montana's decision makers to hear, as well as agencies and the Department of Environmental Quality. I'll let the guests fill you in with the details, but just a little background in a nutshell. Gravel from gravel pits are primarily used to maintain and build roadways, which we inevitably need in our human societies, but you'll learn that there are better ways that operations could function, and the process of public input could be a lot more transparent. Gravel pits come in all shapes and sizes. Sometimes it's a small, local gravel pit. That's not what we're speaking about here today. We're talking about larger, privately owned gravel pits, which are also called open pit mines or open cut mines, because that is how they function, like a strip mine, where layers of earth are stripped away, often going deep enough to impact or even directly hit the groundwater table, impacting the quality and quantity of all groundwater in the region. There's large machinery and trucks involved. The processing that takes place here creates dust, often containing silica, which can be a harmful pollutant to the air for miles around. Some gravel pit operations also contain asphalt plants, which add a whole other layer of airborne pollutants and industrial activity. Information from the Department of Environmental Quality, or DEQ, says that there are about 4,000 permits that have been issued over time in Montana, a few of which have been denied or canceled. But when you look at a map of Montana on the DEQ site that shows the locations of all open cut mines, it's scattered almost solidly with dots, leaving the better question to be, where don't open cut mines exist? 
It becomes even more startling when you overlay it with locations of major rivers, creeks, and waterways. Due to a new law, House Bill 599, which was passed in the 2021 Montana Legislative Session, the ability for these operations to pop up without input from the public or much oversight of any kind has been further ramped up. HB 599 eliminated DEQ's ability to consider water issues, air quality, noise level, hours of operation, meaning truck traffic and the high noises resulting from large gravel pit operations can potentially be occurring 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, in the middle of your neighborhood. And there's close to nothing now that DEQ or neighboring residents can do about it. The bill also changes how a public meeting can be called, literally which residents count and don't count. It cuts the radius of those who are notified down to a mere half mile and only includes occupied dwelling units within that half mile, meaning those with agricultural lands don't qualify because it's not occupied. Those renting out their home don't qualify. Tribal lands that are held by a tribal trust count as one landowner rather than notification being sent to all tribal members who collectively own the title to that land or the individual that does actually live on that land. Furthermore, if the land is open land, without a residential dwelling on it, there's no notification sent to the owner at all. We'll begin by speaking with Ann Hedges and Melissa Newts of Montana Environmental Information Center, or MEIC, which provides resources and information to the public on all issues that impact the air, water, and all environmental elements for Montana environments and its communities. MEIC is actively involved in the legislative session to be an advocate for these elements, and they gain information to share with the public. Here now is Ann Hedges, the Director of Policy and Legislative Affairs for MEIC. We have open-cut mines all across the landscape in the state. We uh, need gravel for all sorts of activities. Counties have a lot of pits that they you know, use for road maintenance. Most of those are pretty small. The, the primary concerns usually regard the larger pits, the private pits that are for, you know, like large road projects or bridge projects that are adjacent or near people's residences and businesses. And here's Melissa Newts, Campaigns and Advocacy Director for MEIC, speaking to what these open-cut mines or gravel pits entail and listing just some of the known impacts. So we call them open pit mines, which are often referred to in local communities as gravel pits. But functionally, they look like open cut mines. So it looks like strip mining or, you know, a gravel pit version of the Berkeley pit, like on a smaller scale, where earth is basically removed top down until you end up with some sort of depression. So it's visual disturbance is the first thing. And then the things that they can impact would be water quality and water quantity. So there's different things that happen depending what's happening at that site. Sometimes they need to use water. Sometimes they impact the water table. When they start digging down, if they hit the water table, if it's a, especially if it's a shallow water table, it can impact, have great impacts for everyone in the area that relies on that water table. And they can also stir up sediment or add things to that water table in their disturbance. There's air pollution. So you can think of air pollution as being a localized thing when they're disturbing the land, but also sometimes there's industry 
that comes along with gravel pits like asphalt plants that adds air pollution. There's also a lot of truck traffic in the area and also coming and going from the area. So all the pollution that's associated with large machinery, in addition to like traveling through residential or rural communities, people that live near them talk about just the sheer amount of noise and also lights if they're 24 hour operations. So it's not something people in towns maybe think about as much, but when they're happening in rural communities, how different it is at night when you put bright lights in dark valleys. Habitat, there's groups we work with that um, really focus on habitat being impacted by, by this kind of mining that takes important habitat and breeding grounds from animals, but also places that live in with wildlife corridors are concerned about open cut mining because our valleys are filling up with people, even if they're rural communities. And there's only so many places that animals can be moving through with less conflict. And if the mines are going away from people, that's often also where migratory routes might be. And so that's another issue in these rural places that local residents would know that more than a company that is somewhere else. Cultural sites is another thing that I've heard about where there's important historic human archaeology at a site or important indigenous sites. And companies from somewhere else don't often know, but local residents often know where these sites are because they live with these places. And of course, indigenous communities also often know where these sites are. And then I would say the social impacts that we've seen at MEIC have been how these situations play out when an industry is coming in and proposing an operation and these communities come to MEIC to try to understand the process and where they can give public comment, how they can like try to defend what's important in their community while these sites are working to get established. And we've seen the difference between communities that have resources to fight these sites versus communities that have fewer resources to fight these sites. And sometimes it's the same operators, sometimes it's different operators. And it often comes down to who can afford to hire personal attorneys to represent their community, which can be very, very expensive. And it can be a really long battle. These people have jobs and they're working class Montanans. So if you can't afford to miss work every single day to monitor the DEQ website, if you can't afford to miss work for daytime meetings, which is often when DEQ is setting meetings, like that's a whole job in itself, right? To watch out for your neighborhood because you never know what's coming. Here again is Ann Hedges speaking about the lack of reclamation or the process of the operation working to restore the area back to some form of its natural state after that operation ceases to exist. Which, when you look at the impact of some of these operations, it's clear that much of the damage can be irreversible to land and water quality and quantity. So many of them don't have reclamation dates. They, you know, despite the Montana Constitution saying that all land shall be reclaimed, a lot of these sites either don't have reclamation dates or they're operating with expired permits, um, which means they have not reclaimed as they were supposed to. You know, we are concerned about two things, the, the upfront issues in the permitting process where the people who live nearby have been taken out of the equation. 
they their concerns have just been steamrolled and have been for a long time. But this most recent change in the law exacerbated that beyond anything reasonable. So we're concerned about both the upfront protecting people and their communities and their water supplies. Um, and then we're worried about what happens when companies no longer exist, they go bankrupt, they continue to operate without any kind of um, permit that's valid, or they simply just don't reclaim. And there's a lot of these sites across the landscape that are unreclaimed. So we would like the state to get a handle on those. And the state doesn't have two things. It doesn't have the resources and they don't ask for those resources because they're afraid of the legislature and budget but we have a billion dollar budget surplus this time. It's a good time for the state to start asking for the resources it needs to actually run programs like this and protect people's livelihoods and their communities. They're, they're nervous about doing something that might look like it's not sympathetic or beneficial to business. And legislators control their budgets and they control the laws. And so you have a lot of agencies like I believe in this instance, where they're just keeping their head below the horizon. They're doing what the industry wants and ignoring the public because the public simply doesn't have the political clout to protect themselves. I asked Anne about House Bill 599, or HB 599, which was passed in Montana's 2021 legislative session. This is the bill that has greatly transformed the permitting process putting the public deeper in the dark on all stages of these operations, from permit to reclamation. You know, the the most recent changes in the law are not the first time that we have really gone backwards in this state as far as protections um, for people living near these, these operations. We have revised the law over the course of about the last 15 years to benefit the industry. And we have made as a state, significant changes to the law that have truly put people in harm's way. So when we think about what happened in the most recent legislative session, you can't look at that in a vacuum. You have to understand that our laws were already written (laughs) and rewritten numerous times to benefit the industry. So we started out kind of behind as far as people are concerned. You know, your average Montanan who happens to live in a rural area near what could be a gravel operation, they started out before the new change in the law um, at a real disadvantage. And 599 just made that worse. So they scattered the permitting approach, but what they didn't say is that the air and water permits are usually something called a general permit. They never do site-specific analysis on any of the subsequent permits. You know, a company comes in and says, I want a general permit, sign on the dotted line, we'll abide by those rules. And there's no opportunity in that process, in the air permitting and the water permitting process for these open cut mines, for the public to comment, for the public to raise hydrologic issues, for the public to raise air quality concerns. There is no opportunity for the public to engage on those issues because they're general permits. You know, the state issues a general permit based upon an assumption that water's not gonna be a problem. Well, for the people who live next door to an open cut operation that is mining in the groundwater table, then water is a real issue for them. 
but the state just removed itself from being able to accept their comments, their hyd hydrologic analysis about how that open cut operation is going to affect them and their wells and their livelihoods. Um, so the public is left scrambling to try to figure out this, this now really complex permitting scheme and then finding dead ends. So what you're doing is you are allowing these operators now to run roughshod over the community in which they are locating. And that's not fair. And you're taking away the voice of the community. So DEQ says, sure, we'll accept public comments, but DEQ isn't required to respond to those comments. The DEQ has to issue a permit in 15 days for a lot of these permits. Um, and so that doesn't give anybody time to hire a hydrologist to submit meaningful comments. So what you've done is this, this whole new law has shut out the public. And DEQ went up to Libby, for example, and it said, it's not our fault. Our hands are tied. We really can't listen to you. Anne is referring to a current large gravel pit operation that's proposed and moving forward currently in Libby, in the district of the gentleman who sponsored the bill itself. And his own constituents are speaking out against the new permitting process that the bill allows for, which he's now creating distance between the bill that he proposed and what's happening in his own district. And he said, that's not what my bill did. Um, DEQ is wrong. And they're ultimately both wrong. <laughs> you know, The sponsor of the bill clearly didn't read his, his legislation. I, I have no other explanation for how he didn't know what his bill did and how it would impact his community. And then you have DEQ hiding behind him and pretending like it has no ability to really coordinate the permitting process between air, water, and open cut. And it, it is really a, a, an atrocious situation for people who their biggest investment is their home or their business. People's wealth is in their property and in their home. And what this bill did is it took away their rights to protect their own investments. That to me is appalling. I just can't believe that people who claim to care about property rights went along with this scheme. As we mentioned earlier, a big change that occurred with HB 599 is changes in who is even notified about the permit and how they are notified, shrinking the radius of notification to a half mile radius and only including occupied dwelling units. So agricultural land, rental properties, or other forms of open land do not qualify to receive notification. They really diminished people's ability to engage or even be notified that this is going on. So one of the things that the law said is, you know, if, it's, if there aren't too many people in the area, the developer just has to post someplace that, that they're proposing this permit. It doesn't say how long they have to post it for. They don't have to verify that they posted it anywhere. It, it takes DEQ's ability to oversee, to make sure that these operators are truly providing the public with the information they need to engage. Uh, it takes them DEQ out of that equation. It's now 100% up to the developer to let people know and decide if there's 10 occupied dwelling units within a half a mile. But DEQ says, we don't have any say over that. And I, I would disagree. I think DEQ very much can, can force them to provide or something of where they posted the notice. How long was the notice posted for? You know, where's the map? 
So one of the things we fought over in DEQ's rulemaking is DEQ should have to post a map of every site online, but DEQ isn't going to. DEQ said, don't worry about it. The developer has to make a map available. But when you have such truncated, such short public comment periods, then people don't have time to go to the developer, ask him for a map, hope that the map um, is delivered in time for the public comment. So people don't even know where these, the real locations, the boundaries of these proposed, proposed facilities might be. That's insane. As an adjacent landowner, everybody in the state, actually everybody in the state should be nervous about what this means for them if they live outside of cities because their rights just got trampled and they may not even be able to see what the boundaries of the proposed site are until after the permit is issued. And that's just not okay. Another reality of the permitting process is permits are said to only be issued for locations that are quote, high and dry, meaning away from ground or surface water. Melissa Newts with MEIC says that the company itself is the one to determine if a location is high and dry or not, not requiring any further hydrological or other environmental impact studies. We've had members talk to us about how Montana, over the course of a year, water looks very different from season to season, and the people who live there know it best. So a developer at any given time could get the imagery that suits them, to demonstrate that it's high and dry if they're collecting data in the time of year that favors their open cut development, but wouldn't necessarily reflect the reality of the people that live in that community and rely on that water. So that's this other layer of concern that people are bringing when they're not able to find a way to insert correct information in the process the DEQ is moving forward of permitting these places and the developer has all the say. Melissa also explains how under the new law, expansions of the operations are permitted at any point throughout the pit's operations, and it's not required for them to go through additional permitting processes to grant these expansions. Anne now tells us about another change under the law, which allows operations to extend the time of their operations without notifying the public. Once you get an open-cut operation in your area, you may never know about extensions to their permit. So DEQ can extend permits by five years. DEQ can change the post mine reclamation plan. So when you first comment on one of these, you can, you know, you're told this is what this property is gonna look like when they're done mining on this specific date or this year. And now that can all change without any public involvement. So a company can say, we're going to fill this pit in. We're going we're gonna to do what we need to do to take it back to its original contours and geography. They don't have to do that necessarily if they can get DEQ down the road to agree to a different post-mining land use, which is, hey, let's just put up some fences or let's just have this be like a, a pond, something that is not reclaimed, a pond filling up with water that could easily be taking the water from other people in that community who are relying on wells. Uh, so that is a huge concern. It, it, it allows them to operate in the dark, to operate in a way in which adjacent landowners are never notified, are not allowed to participate in that conversation. Then when it comes to protecting your area from the impact, 
As Melissa mentioned, it can come down to which communities can afford the legal fees to fight it in court. Costs out of pocket can average one to $200,000 over an extended period of time. Now back to Ann Hedges. And you talk to these poor people and so often they're like, this is a full-time job. And most people don't have that kind of capacity. And here's the deal. It doesn't need to be this way. It just doesn't. We could have a system in which people could have their say, in which these facilities could be designed in a way to minimize the impacts to neighboring properties, that we could make sure that everybody is notified and knows not just when a permit is being proposed, but when there's an expansion permit proposed. Right now, we have a really broken system where you have hundreds, you have nearly 400 mines that are operating beyond their expiration date. You have a ton of mines operating or not operating whose reclamation date is expired. And what is DEQ doing about that? You know, if, if you're past your reclamation date, if your reclamation date has expired, DEQ should be making these people forfeit their bonds and they should be cleaning up. Oh, wait, DEQ doesn't have bonds for a lot of these facilities. So DEQ needs to get its house in order in order to help oversee this program. And we need to give people back their ability to participate in democracy um, instead of getting railroaded by a a developer who doesn't care about their rights. Um, The state is supposed to be that intermediary. And what we've been systematically doing session after session is eliminating the state's ability to be that arbiter of these types of community problems that are created through the the state's permitting system. Uh, It's just a really unbalanced system we have now. There's still going to be open cut operations because we still need gravel. We could just do it better. Here again is Melissa Newts. The other thing I want to say about DEQ, yes, the DEQ needs more resources. I think we're in agreement on that. And also, at the same time, it's true that DEQ supported this bill during the session. DEQ points the finger in a different direction and says that they don't have the ability to do certain things that they do have the ability to do. And when we just were at the recent hearing for the rulemaking, DEQ said they supported the rules as they were written. So DEQ is not an innocent (laughs) bystander. They're actively supporting this bill. DEQ was you know, asked a question when this bill was going through by legislators who were looking to DEQ for guidance. And DEQ's response was, this bill strikes a good balance. And then when when legislators this summer asked DEQ to come and present to them about how the program was going because they had been hearing concerns about the program from, you know, news reports, DEQ's response was so subpar They focused on how quickly they're getting out permits. They showed a graph showing that they've never gotten permits issued this quickly. They never mentioned the impacts that it's having on people's lives. They've never mentioned the complaints they've gotten from community members adjacent to these proposed sites who were saying, what about us? What about our rights? What about our ability to have a say? 
they didn't mention any of that. And they had the opportunity in front of the very body who has the obligation to rewrite the law in a way that works for the average Montanan. I don't know. That to me is more offensive than anything. When you have an opportunity to fix a problem and instead you say everything is fine, nothing to see here, I think there's culpability um, in a really fundamental way. No, absolutely. It's, um, yeah, it goes well beyond the innocent bystander. We are an active participant. And I'm wondering, because um, MEIC, you both work and hear from folks from all over the state that are well into um, dealing with the brunt of this issue, you know, for years, decades even. Do you have an example of, you know, a community that is well into this process where they've had this operation near them and the impacts that they've been dealing with. It's not on the horizon for them. It's very much a reality. What are some of those, those things that they, they're yeah, not- I'll try to like protect people's right to privacy and locations by not saying too much, but I'll say that there is a community. It's a rural community and the people that we work with have lived there for like, it's where they moved when they were young and they raised their kids and their kids are grown and gone and it's a more rural community and they're watching there. It's being developed around them, around this rural Montana community. It's getting more populated at the same time that it's getting more populated. It's becoming more arid and an operator started up like the next section over, you know, within a mile. And these new developments are coming and the truck traffic is increasing because the new developments don't have water. They're all in cisterns. So now they have a lot of truck traffic because there's no available well water anymore. So it's on one side of their property. On the other side, there's an operator that has all sorts of deficiencies and problems and is continuing to disturb the land, even though they don't have a green light from DEQ, they're still operating. And people's wells in the area have been impacted. And so what that looks like is a reduction in water quantity for some people who have all, always had plenty of water in their rural properties. And it's water for things like not just for them, but also for their livestock. And people's water quality has changed. So some of the neighbors like have to replace appliances every few months instead of every several years because they're filling up with silt because the groundwater has been impacted by this nearby, not totally legal, not totally permitted operation that's already happening. It's complicated. And this is not a community that can necessarily afford to pay for lots of legal fees. Yeah, something that that becomes very interesting to me with this topic is the prickly issue of zoning in the state. um, And that it's it's an example of often the folks who are adamant against zoning can be the ones that are directly impacted by these operations. And then after the fact, kind of seeing like, oh, um, what could have been done differently? I mean, are you seeing like folks on the ground that are saying in retrospect, maybe we should have like looked deeper into zoning options? Are there options for folks to look at now um, that would be you know specific to this kind of operation or is is zoning zoning work in a way that's just like an overall blanket of like all or nothing kind of thing we all know that zoning outside of cities is next to impossible on any meaningful scale you can have some citizen initiated zoning districts but 
um, and, and those citizen initiated zoning districts have been used in the past to try to protect communities from these operations. However, the legislature changed the law in 599 as well. So now, as soon as a developer submits a permit, they instantly have a right that didn't exist before that prevents the community from zoning. So you can no longer zone out an operation or try to mitigate that operation and its impacts on your community through zoning if a developer submits a permit. As, as soon as, not when they get the permit, but when they submit it, when they apply. So it could be a really incomplete application and you have just prevented that community from being able to use zoning as a tool, um, which historically has been done. But you can't get zoning. I, there's so many people who've said, God, I wish we had zoning, but we can't get it. They just simply cannot get it. County commissioners are not interested in zoning outside of city lines. And when they are, it's only when they're pressured by a small area of people. And this law, the legislature put up roadblocks to people, people being able to use zoning as a tool to protect their property. Um, so even if you wanted zoning, you're SOL. I think that people misunderstand zoning. I think people hear zoning and they think it means my property's worth less money. Therefore, or I can't do whatever I want anymore. Therefore, I don't like zoning. But it's interesting because in my experience, the people that are anti-zoning, they stand the most to gain by being anti-zoning and they stand the most to lose by it being anti-zoning, right? So they stand the most to gain because anything goes on this property. Whoever wants to buy it, like to the highest bidder because anything goes. But also they stand there's the most to lose because their neighbor could do whatever they wanted. But in towns, what we see is that zoning really doesn't negatively impact property value like people think. I mean, look at any growing city in Montana. It's very hard to find places where property values are going down, except for places near industrial activity like open cut mines, hard rock mines, you know, fossil fuel development, like those are the places going down in value. Most places are not going down in value because of any zoning. In fact, zoning often makes property value go up because now developers actually know what they can do. And the process actually can become easier for developers when zoning exists and subdiv subdivision regulation is strong and comprehensive growth plans are strong. Like that's what developers like because then they know what they can do. And it, I mean, I've seen this and I've heard planners talk about this and I've heard like legislative branch and executive branch people talk about this. So it's just, I think there's a really um, broad misunderstanding of zoning and it definitely favors developers of all kinds. Well, I shouldn't say develop favors developers in towns because those developers seem to actually like predictability, but in terms of industry and extractive industry, definitely favors extractive industry. Well, hearing all of this information can just leave us frustrated, upset, and potentially worried. Stick around for the end of the episode when Anne and Melissa and our other guests give us some direct calls to action on this for members of the public, for legislators, and for folks at the DEQ. This issue also ties into a larger conversation that we're seeing all across Montana and across the world 
As we see undeveloped land, whether it was previously agricultural lands or intact natural environments, being sold off and rapidly developed for residential, commercial, or industrialized subdivision, Sometimes it's easy to just focus on the superficial elements that we see as potentially developments being unsightly, but it's important to remember the impacts that we don't see on the surface, and that all of those elements put added strain on septic waste needs, water needs, and it fragments the habitat corridors that wildlife require to survive. One of the many areas that are directly feeling these pressures is Arlie, Montana. In May of this year, 2022, Riverside Contracting issued a permit for an open-cut mining operation and asphalt plant on a 157-acre property in Arlie. Arlie is at the southern end of the Flathead Reservation, and while the valley is growing in terms of folks moving in, it's still a very naturally intact valley. Only a half hour north of the city of Missoula, it is mostly small farms and undeveloped natural spaces. It is nestled between the Rattlesnake Wilderness and the foothills of the Mission Mountains, making it a critical wildlife corridor for a variety of land species, raptor birds, and aquatic species including bull trout. Additionally, the proposed open-cut mine is just adjacent to the Garden of a Thousand Buddhas, a site that attracts people from around the world to find peace here. Here is Jennifer Nochen, who has lived in this valley for 25 years. She lives on a small homestead farm where she grows her own food and raises goats and chickens. It is a small community, Arlie is. It uh, has the beautiful but very cold Jocko River running through it. It is um, homesteads, um, small farms, uh, cattle operations, um, small uh, orchards, gar- mar- market gardens, and um, very quiet it is really quiet there. But one of the first things that I thought of when I learned of this project was the implications of the noise. Because there are times in my little place where I live, even though the highway is close and the highway is loud at times, you can hear it. Um, I have heard the powwow going on, which is several miles across the valley during powwow time. I can hear that in the evening. I have heard the Arlie football games being announced in the fall, even though the school is several miles away. And I have heard the um, Buddha garden uh, horns that they play um, at times if they're having a retreat or something special. Um, the Buddha garden is located just across the pasture from where I am. And so just being able to, on a quiet evening, hear any one of those things, not to mention the wildlife, but to be able to hear those things makes that spot really special. And that would be eradicated by the, this kind of a project. And tell me about the wildlife that you guys have there. We have, of course, deer. We have uh, black bear in the fall, especially this season. They have come earlier than normal. There are grizz in the valley, but we have not had them down on our end of the valley floor yet that we've known of. There are wolf in the valley, um, but we have not had them down as low as, say, where my property is yet. Owls, which are great to hear in the middle of the winter, they come and sit. We have some really mature trees in our backyard, and so in the dead of winter, they will do their calls back and forth. That's really special. Um, Fox, coyote, of course, skunks, (laughs) all the little critters are there too. Um, A fair bit of large raptors because we are close to the Jocko River. Bald eagles, a lot of hawks, and then of course there's migrating birds that come through too. 
Jennifer is directly next to the proposed open-cut mine and asphalt plant, and when she received the notice in May, as she was within that half-mile radius, she was alarmed. She immediately started knocking on neighbors' doors to discuss what they could collectively do, and she knew she had to act quickly as the window of time they had to respond about a public hearing was slim. Jennifer and her neighbors quickly formed what is now a nonprofit group called Friends of the Jocko to collectively take action and inform their own community as they navigated a process that they quickly found was set up to keep the public in the dark. We'll come back to Jennifer and hear about her experience, but first we'll hear from Shelley Fiant, one of Jennifer's neighbors, who is three quarters of a mile from the proposed site, so she did not receive a notification but she became an active member of the Friends of the Jocko group. Shelley is a Salish tribal member and served on the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribal Council for eight years, serving as the council chairwoman in 2020 and 2021. We hear some about her own connection to this land and cultural context. I've lived in the Jocko Valley for a large part of my life. I grew up here and then I moved back recently within know, the last 10 years. I have four adult sons. I have six granddaughters, one grandson and a great granddaughter. And I'm very concerned for the Jocko Valley in that, you know, I want this place to be here for my kids and, you know, my grandchildren. Yeah, the proposed gravel pit and asphalt plant is very concerning to us as, you know, longtime residents of the Jocko Valley. Um, the Jocko Valley is the southern entrance to the Flathead Indian Reservation in western Montana. The reservation was established through the Hellgate Treaty of 1855 for the exclusive use and benefit of the Bitterate Salish, the Upper Kalispat, and the Kasanka Band of Kootenai. My particular family stayed in the Bitterate um, after the treaty for like 40 years, um, because we were promised our own reservation in the Bitterit Valley. But once they did a survey that deemed the Bitterit unsuitable, we were forcibly moved and had our own trail of tears from the Bitterit Valley. My great-great-grandmother, Sacroman, was um, an adult by then. She was 10 when the treaty was negotiated, and she was probably close to 50 when we had to move from the Bitterit. And I think a lot of Salish people lived um, as close as they could back to the Bitterit. So thus settling in the Evro, Shalai, Arli, and Jocko Valley area so they could be you know, close to the Bitterit. I recently learned that Arli is designated as a cultural property. The definition of that means it's a site that has cultural significance so you know understand that in our worldview we consider that the water the land the air that we breathe the animals birds fish and even the rocks um, everything is our relatives and you know in our original instructions we were taught that to care for them and they will care for us. And that was evidenced in our creation stories. Unfortunately, through various governmental policies and acts, laws and regulations, those 
original instructions have been compromised a bit. And a prime example is the DAS Act or the Allotment Act, which, you know, allotted either 160 or 80 acres to individual Indians. And then they opened up the rest of the reservation for homesteading. So that, you know, we consider that an illegal taking of land. And we are one of the few reservations where we're, we are a minority on our own reservation. Um, we do own a majority of the land, thanks to a really aggressive buyback policy that the Tribal Council adopted in the mid-1980s. So this is part of the problem, is that we have our fee land within the reservation boundaries. It's not all trust land held for individual Indians or for the tribe in trust by the federal government. And because it's important to educate local folks there on jurisdiction laws that they might now be dealing with in this issue, I asked Shelley to elaborate on what is meant by fee lands. So we lost a lot of land within the reservation boundaries to non-natives who just came to the reservation and um, homesteaded the area. So once land was taken by non-tribal members, that land is in fee status where they pay taxes to the county government. Right now, I think we're close to 70% of the land being in tribal ownership. It has caused a lot of issues, a lot of strife, um, just the jurisdictional issues within the reservation. We'll come back to hear from Shelley and her views on the proposed open-cut mine. Now we go back to Jennifer Nochen, Shelley's neighbor, who originally began knocking on doors to connect with her neighbors on this. Jennifer informs me that folks in her vicinity were not particularly tight-knit, that there were neighbors they regularly got together with or shared tools and other things with, but this proposed project has definitely brought together neighbors that she either barely knew or didn't know at all. I asked her about when she first heard about the proposal. We first got the letter in the mail um, on a Friday afternoon at the beginning of May, and it was shocking to think about what it could mean for us. Um, The letter was from the contractor, not from a state agency, and it um, told us about the proposed project, that it was for uh, up to a million cubic yards of material, and that it would include an asphalt plant, and that the permit, maybe I learned this after investigating a little bit, but the permit is for a 20-year time period, and that we had 30 days from that moment to submit. The only recourse that we um, understood at that time was to send in this form. It turned out it was the wrong form, but it was the form that we got to um, request a public hearing. And, and to make any public comments that we wanted to make. And so that was how we first heard about it. And my, I, maybe it was even our neighbor across the road that contacted us first, but I think she, she called us or sent us a text and said, did you get the letter? Can we get together and talk about this? And these are neighbors that of course we've known for 20 years and you know, we see them on the road and we visit with them, but they're not maybe somebody that we're super close with. And so we went over to their house um, within the next couple of days and talked about what could we do. And that particular family has, has lived there for over 40 years. So it, it really 
was really hurtful for them to think that another neighbor within the valley would have proposed a project this big and not even come to them and knocked on the door and said, hey, this is what I'm thinking of doing. So I think there was some personal hurt there too, to just think of having you know owned land side by side for so long and not having someone even personally mention it to them. And who were, at least initially, some of those different entities that you did decide would be folks to reach out to, you know, and you can like just generally, you know, was it lawyers? Was it- no, no, it was, uh, it was uh, the, the Lake County um, representatives. Um, what about the tribe? Um, what about our air and water protections? It's been a couple of months now. We've been through so many different agencies. I can't even remember what else we thought about. We mostly just thought about what neighbors do we think we could pull together on this? And then b- we just sitting down at that table made a plan for um, who was going to talk to who. And so that's when I started the knocking on doors campaign of going around. We were able to, from the application, to figure out who were the half-mile neighbors. And some of them we knew, some of them we didn't. And then just use that map and start. Um, I printed out a small piece of paper with the basic facts on it and my personal email and phone number and just um, mentioned that we had, at this point now, it's much less than 30 days to try to get this form in. And, and how I approached it with the neighbors was just that you don't need to be for or against it. This is just our opportunity to learn more about the project and potentially to mitigate its impacts because it seemed like we may not have a chance to fight it. And you said that the form that they included initially in that letter was the wrong form? It was just an outdated form. It had the old legislation on it. The legislation used to be that 30% of the half-mile neighbors, 10 10 people or 30% of the people that were notified in the half mile needed to have turned in the form requesting a public hearing in order to have a public hearing. And in fact, the new legislation is 51%. So it's possible that some people saw that and thought, "Eh, well, there'll be a couple people that'll do this. I don't need to. They had the wrong county listed on the paperwork. Then as we dug deeper, we found some other compliance issues and that had to do with who actually got that letter. Um, Did everyone really get notified? And problems with address, um, problems with notification to the tribal members. Yeah, then we just started to have some compliance issues with that. So you found that not everyone within that half mile radius received the letter? No. And, you know, what they did, basically, again, because the applicant is responsible for notification, they just pull up the cadastral uh, tax records and copy off the addresses from the tax records. That may or may not be the person that's living there. That may or not be the person's Um, you know, mailing address where they're going to receive mail. I think the most egregious one of all of that was there is a tribal member that is on fee land right across from where the proposed site is, and he did not get the letter. In fact, it just went to CSKT Pablo, Montana, you know, this like generic place. And so, I mean, there are some folks that think, you know, when it comes to representative representation, really all of the members of the tribe ought to have been notified because they all own that land in common, you know, together. Or at the very least, that individual who owns a home on that land ought to have been personally notified. Yes. And that was the frustrating thing is this half mile thing. And I don't remember how long that law has been in place, but a half mile isn't that far when you're talking about a project of this scope. I mean, some of the neighbors that are just on the edge of that will be directly impacted by it. And then yet they have no say. So 
yourself along with your neighbors that you brought together, you formed, did you form a nonprofit or just a organization? We, we did form a, a, a state member, uh, member nonprofit organization called Friends of the Jocko. And um, that was very, it, it was kind of a rushed to try to take action because we did not know when the DEQ might approve the permit. We have really no idea of knowing about that. Um, it's been difficult to communicate with the DEQ about that. It's not like we have a direct line to how the project is going. We did some things in early on, which is like do a public information request because we wanted to find out you know, what was happening. We were concerned about the responses that people had made for the public hearing. We thought by our count, we would have had the 51% and they were saying that we didn't. It turned out that there were definitely some compliance issues because there were some neighbors who indeed did turn in their letter and DEQ says, well, we didn't get it. And part of that public information request was we were able to see who turned in the notice and who didn't. And um, that it took a really long time to get that public information request. And I ended up calling some of our um, legislators and uh, the Lake County commissioners and a, and a bunch of other agencies to say, can you just put a word in and ask DEQ why they haven't responded to this public information request? Because it's part of their accountability to the residents that they respond to these things. And tell me a little bit about like, you know, whether for yourself or other neighbors that you knew the actions they were taking, you know, what does this communication look like? Are you, who are you calling? Are you emailing? Who are you getting help from? Who are you not getting any help from? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we met, we had a meeting, we requested a meeting with the Lake County commissioners and, and they granted that meeting. At this time, we weren't um, necessarily a fully formed organization. We were just coming together, but a few of us met um, in person and over Zoom. And they basically told us, uh, you know, this is out of our jurisdiction. There's not really much that we can do about that. And there were some mixed feelings in that meeting. You know, one of the representatives, one of our, we have three commissioners said, well, we need gravel and, um, and, um, and that we just needed to follow the process. And I was really frustrated by that because we were following the process and I felt DEQ wasn't following the process. They weren't following their own rules. They also said, well, you know, some of these concerns, because a lot of neighbors had a lot of different concerns, many of them around water, and they were just making it sound like these were just hypothetical concerns. Did we have any real evidence that this project was going to impact water, for example? So that was a little bit um, disconcerting. But um, we also tried on a couple of occasions to reach out to um, the various agencies within the tribe that we thought would be concerned with this, wildlife, air, and water. And I did try to, and actually I'm still in the process of trying to be placed on the agenda for tribal council so that we could speak directly and share our concerns and, and make sure that they're aware. But the question about how are we communicating, it's been, um, you're just now launching the awareness of this to the broader community. Um, I think that people in the community have read the newspaper articles or, or seen it on TV or heard neighbors talk about it at the post office. But um, now we are actively through email and through social media and through our website, hoping to bring the awareness to the entire Arley community and beyond 
We're also doing a postcard mailing campaign next week that will go to all of the addresses in our lease so that they can also get um, a piece of physical mail because a lot of residents are not online. And then as a group, as friends of the Jocko, you know, are you guys physically meeting in a space from time to time? Are you just like emailing updates and calling? In the beginning, we did have a couple of um, what I called neighbor meetings, um, just of the people that I felt like were taking action and were taking a leadership role. And at that time, we were still just going down the rabbit holes of which agencies, which people, which representatives should we reach out to and try to engage on this topic. And we were brainstorming all kinds of things. Was it federal representatives? Was it the EPA? Was it state representatives? Was it people within our community? We were really at a place where we were casting about and each of us trying to figure out what we could do. And and so we had a couple of, um, we had a meeting on my lawn. And now we're having meetings on my, um, my neighbor, Roger and Elizabeth's lawn. And, and then lots of email. Now that we've gotten the website built, now that we've got the law firm engaged, probably most of the communications will just be via email until we have a public meeting. And we may soon have a public meeting, say, in Arley, where we invite everyone within the community to come and hear about it and ask questions. I attended um, the Arley District Tribal Meeting, which um, I'm not sure how often those really take place, but it was very well attended. There were over 50 people there. And the number one thing, the first thing that was on the agenda was this gravel operation. And there were two attorneys there from, um, from, from the tribe that spoke about it. And um, there was a lot of opposition in the room. I think many of the people, this was the first time they were hearing about the project. Of folks that live in that area, has there been more or less a consensus one way or the other? There are some people that are not too concerned because we have had a lot of gravel pits in Arley over time. There was one just at the end of White Coyote Road when the Highway 93 project was getting redone, when, you know, several years ago when they did the, the split, um, added the extra lanes to 93, and there was even one across the highway even from that. And so people say, ah, a gravel pit. I mean, you can drive around and see a small, even privately or even a state gravel pit and think, what's the big deal? And I think that is the thing that we will need to um, spread information about is that this is a much bigger project than that. It includes the asphalt batch plant and that it could run 20, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that it involves fuel and a lot of water, water discharge, a lot of noise, a lot of dust, a lot of traffic, that it's just bigger than what you think of when you think of a neighborhood gravel pit where you might get some gravel for your driveway. And have you likely become quite an expert on the impacts of what this type of an operation and the size of this operation would be if if you've learned just what some of those um, environmental and otherwise impacts would be. I wouldn't say an expert, but I can tell you every time I drive around Montana now, my eyes are looking out for <laughs> gravel and asphalt plants and they are all over. Um, and and uh, some of my other um, neighbors within the organization are starting to dig into what the environmental impacts could be for, especially in terms of the asphalt and the particulates that are coming out of the asphalt operation. And when I mentioned that Arley is a small valley, 
It has its own inversions, as we all do in western Montana valleys, but it's a small valley, so sometimes those inversions in the winter can, can sit there for a while. And we all are already all aware of what air quality can be like in the summer with our wildfire seasons. And so now we've got this added um, particulates that would be coming from the asphalt plant. And also there are a lot of concerns about water and <clears throat> how deep would the digging go? Would DEQ monitor that? Where would the water go that might come in from that digging, the groundwater? What's going to happen to some of the underground creeks and water um, sources that are underneath, um, which eventually will go out to the Jocko? What's going to happen to the irrigation system, which currently is under major revision for the first time in decades because of the newly signed water compact? Like, There's a lot of questions about water. Sure. So especially like those two impacts, not just for the water, but the particulate matter in the air, those go well past that half mile radius. So it's almost like a joke to think that that's the radius that should be concerned. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It would affect um, one of our members recently did some research on asphalt and how far that particulate matter would go and how far away our school is. And, you know, the school is a mile, mile point four or something like that from this site. It would it would certainly go that way. Wow. In your process of researching now in this stage, have you looked up other communities in the state that have kind of gone through this process or, you know, are, are dealing with the brunt of that impact now? Some, yes. And um, we've also participated in a couple of public hearings that have been with the DEQ. They're, they're not specifically about our project. They were about um, the Environmental Quality Control Board that, that sort of supervises or advises DEQ. We participated in that. And also something about the new administrative rules in relation to the new legislation. And on those calls, we were able to hear from other residents in Montana and the devastating effects of gravel pits that have happened in their communities that they've been working with on for years. Um, wells going dry, um, issues of non-compliance by the contractors and deficiencies with the DEQ going um, unregulated for a long period of time. So we got to hear about their stories. And tell me where Friends of the Jocko, your organization is now, what you guys are looking at going forward as well. And just to note, we had this conversation with Jennifer on August 30th of 2022. Right. So we have formed the organization. And one of the first things that we did was uh, retain a law firm. And uh, Ferguson Law Firm is here in Missoula. They have worked with environmental projects and so are experienced in this area. And, and I'm not um, familiar with all of the legal uh, back and forth and, and injunctions and letters and things that they have sent, but they will be following the process um, closely. If the permit is um, approved, they will be ready to take action immediately on that. At this point, the state of the permit is, we just learned last week that a deficiency notice was finally issued from the DEQ to the applicant. So on there, it lists kind of a bullet points of, of problems that they found with the permit. Some of these problems were ones that came up from public comment and that residents have made to the, um, to the DEQ about the water sources and about the wildlife. And so that was great to hear that some of our public comments were taken into consideration. 
Some of the things on the deficiency letter are somewhat administrative, check the box kind of things. For instance, something like wildlife. Okay, so if they didn't list some of the wildlife that we all know is there and they do check the box, what does that mean? Does that mean that the DEQ just gives them a pass on that or do they actually investigate how that wildlife would be harmed? Okay. Yeah, I guess that's like a glimmer of something promising that those comments were actually listened to and then put forward. And DEQ has told us that they will accept public comment throughout the process until the permit is approved. So we have the opportunity now in terms of public awareness and getting the word out that to our community and beyond that anyone, not just the half mile neighbors, anyone in the community, and this was the case uh, you know, before the deficiency notice, can make public comment. And so now is our opportunity to really um, let the DEQ know what our community is like, how concerned we are about the impacts, and also to bring impacts that maybe the DEQ didn't consider about um, the, the road access, the, the traffic um, concerns on the road. You know, White Coyote Road is a, is a narrow county lane. It is, it is paved, but it's, it doesn't have wide shoulders. If you know, you're traveling down the road with a horse trailer and the school bus comes by, someone's got to pull over for a little bit. It's, it's not a large road. And it's also the road that the Buddha Garden, the Garden of 1000 Buddhas is on. So during the summer, well, all year, but especially during the summer, there is a lot of traffic on that road of tourists coming to visit the the garden. And so um, the garden is something that I think will be directly impacted by having such an industrial project within three quarters of a mile, half mile of it. It's a very peaceful place. It's visited and loved by a lot of people in Montana and beyond. And it is in close proximity to this project. So going back to your current stage for Friends of the Jocko, you have a firm engaged, um, but now you're looking at having to raise funds to pay for that. Can you tell me what that may look like, that you project it may look like as far as raising those funds and the reality of that as a grassroots organization. You know, it's not like, oh, I know this person with a lot of money that can be our donor. You know, what does that really look like? It's, it's really tough. I mean, when I think about it from a, the journey is we need public awareness within our community of the project. We need to generate some energy and some information and some emotion so that people within their busy lives can stop and realize that this is this is happening right there in their community before it's too late. And then it's motivating those people to activate their social networks, to tell their friends and family in Arley and beyond about this project so that we have a broad base of people from which to ask for funds in order to pay for the legal fees, the mailings, um, we probably will need to hire some expert people, for instance, a hydrologist or someone within wildlife or cultural resources to, to write a report about this particular project, and that will take money. So all of those funds, like even to hire basically the environmental impact study, that's going to be grassroots funded. It will. It will. And what the law firm will help us do is turn it to DEQ and say, if you're not going to consider an environmental impact study, then why not? And so it will be their job to press them and say, if you're not going to consider it, here's what the law says, uh, you know, on our behalf, because we as residents don't have that kind of legal background. We don't have the environmental background to be able to um, kind of go toe to toe with the DEQ on that. 
So as far as you know, even on a superficial level, there has been no environmental impact study done. There is not. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you had mentioned that DEQ has now announced that they will take public comment until the permit is approved. It's always been the case that they would take public comment from anyone throughout up until the, the permit is approved. They only were going to take the, I'm calling them votes for the public hearing, from the half-mile neighbors. So it was only the half-mile neighbors that could um, sign the form and say, I'd like to, we would like to have a public hearing. But anyone throughout the process can make public comment. And DEQ has always told us this. It's been a little sticky because they have told us, here's the email to submit public comment. Okay, that's assuming that everyone in the community has online access and has availability of internet and that kind of a thing. But um, when we got our very first public information request, many of those comments were not included in that. Now, did the DEQ just fail to include them in the public information request because they just did a poor job, or did they really not receive them? I'm hoping it was just administrative insight uh, oversight and that they they really did get all those comments and take them into consideration. They just forgot to put them into the public information request. I asked Jennifer what the overall vibe has been of the community group and how they keep momentum through this difficult, often taxing process. There's a, there's a sense of people are a little bit, they're, they're both at the same time resigned to that this is going to happen, especially in the beginning, before we hired the law firm, before we got organized as an official group. It felt like there was just nothing that we were going to be able to do, especially when we found out that public hearing was denied. But then there are times when we're really hopeful, especially when we're like working together as a group and feel like, we have, we have a chance to fight this. And in the beginning, we often said, oh, even if this has to go through, could we at least mitigate the impacts? Could we, could we have the hours of operation be you know, eight to five instead of 20 hours a day? Could we mitigate how the trucks are gonna go up and down the road? Um, could we have some mitigations on, on air quality and dust control? Um, you know, That's what we were hopeful then. I don't know, given the recent legislation, how much of that could even happen. I mean, I'm not an expert in this recent legislation, but when you take a look at it, there's basically just like a line has been draw th- drawn through every citizen recourse and protection that we might have. Even something simple like protection from wildfire on the site. I mean, that's a no-brainer in Montana right now that you just can't have wildfire issues and um, close to an industrial site, and that's been taken out entirely. So um, I think we are hopeful too that um, that the tribe will work on this from their own avenues. Um, they have uh, water, res- you know, a water resources people. They have illegal departments. They have wildlife folks, and we're hoping that those agencies will activate from their positions of of power and resources on this as well, and that maybe. Um, the Friends of the Jocko and the tribe can collaborate where we can to um, mitigate this project. And, you know, have you had specific instances of approaching folks in the area that may be in or out of that half mile radius and letting them know about it and that this was the first they heard about? Like, what are, what are some of those reactions that you've had from folks that you were the bearer of this news that they had no idea yeah, I think when I did the initial knocking on doors, there may have been a few people who had not heard about it, had not gotten the notice, and, and were a little bit um, 
shocked by it. I think it was too much for them to take in at the time. They couldn't really think about how big it was or maybe their minds also went to, you know, gravel pit. One of the one of the residents that I talked to on the phone only said, "I'm for it. I'm for it because I'd rather have that than a subdivision." And we were coming fresh off of um, a very large subdivision proposal in Arlie that really rocked the community. And um, I think they were, they were really shocked that something that large could have happened that easily. And it was denied, but it's not over. I mean, there will be other developers coming in. And so I think that was an immediate reaction of, I'll rather take this you know, small gravel pit of a couple of dump trucks than a 99 home subdivision, which was what was proposed. And that was the reaction. And I'm thinking, you could have both. Um, on this particular piece of land. Jen goes on to voice further concerns that Friends of the Jocko have, knowing the new laws about potential expansion and extension of the asphalt plant, potentially happening without public notification. Uh, we're, we're concerned that like, okay, well, this is this permit, but then what happens when the applicant um, two years from now says, oh, you know, we'd like to go 13 feet, we'd like to go 14 mm-hmm. feet, and the permit just starts to creep um, in what what public participation will we have at that time? Sure. You know, we how will we even know that it's going on? Um, what about water quality? How will we know that there's any monitoring going on? So, you know, that is what we're concerned about. And, and one of the neighbors pressed DEQ about this particularly and saying, well, what about the regulation of the asphalt plant? And they're like, well, that just sort of comes along with it. Wow. As if there really wasn't, and, and partly it's because it's called a mobile asphalt plant. I think that this is something that they that they move there and is erected. It's not like built into the ground kind of a thing, the asphalt plant. It's 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 mobile, not like they move it every day, but like mobile from site to site. Okay. That's a good point. Tell me, were you have you been in contact with Montana Environmental Information Center and kind of um, if so, what resources has that helped connect you with? In the beginning, I believe that Montana Environmental Information Center reached out to me because of some press that I had received in the local newspapers. And um, that was really um, helpful to just know that there was another organization, knowledge about about this, um, working on it. They were able to coach us as a neighbor, and we hadn't even formed an official organization then, but just as a community that we should do outreach, that we should, you know, call our legislators, that we should um, activate as much as we could to try to get this public hearing. And so they were helpful on that front, and we're hoping to um, use their resources and information as we go forward. And have you yourself been involved in any kind of organization organizing like this before not at all this has been really a learning curve i think for all of the community members but um really you're having to learn which agency is responsible for what and and in the very beginning i think before we were really as organized as we are that was what a community member would say to you is like oh well the Lake County commissioners won't let that happen or, oh, there's some state law that will prevent that from happening because that's what you hope is going to happen with your governmental agencies, that they are there to protect you. And in fact, as we went down each of those rabbit holes, none of those had given us any assurances that they would stop it. And now we go back to Shelley Fiant. She speaks to why she is directly concerned about the proposed gravel pit and asphalt plant. I live outside of the half mile 
boundary that Riverside Contracting was required to send a notice to. But just because I'm outside of that half mile radius doesn't mean that this asphalt plant wouldn't affect me. The noise, the dust, the smell, the traffic. I just can't imagine thousands of dump truck loads of gravel and asphalt, you know, meeting them on the road. I'm really concerned for the wildlife. We have a lot of deer in the valley. In the last few years, we've had a lot of mountain lions, you know, come down from the mountains. There's wolves, there's coyotes, there's all kinds of raptors. And so I'm, I'm really concerned about that. Not to mention the Jocko River and the fish. The tribe has spent hundreds of thousands of dollars trying to restore bull trout back into our fisheries. I'm very concerned for the groundwater and for the Jocko River itself. There's, we have, you know, bears in the valley. We have all kinds of wildlife and, you know, they go from field to field eating. So I, I just can't imagine how this is going to disrupt, you know, their corridor, their travel corridor. Can you tell me just, I know you're outside of the half mile. Can you just tell us the proximity that you are to the proposed site? Um, and then how you first heard about the project or the proposal? As the crow flies, I'm probably three quarters of a mile mm-hmm. from the site when I first heard about it was through social media and the community of R. Lee had just fought off 99 unit subdivision proposed on 77 acres across from the R. Lee celebration grounds. And we just don't have the water table. That's the main issue at hand here is the water table of the Jocko Valley there have been a lot of studies on it. And so the community really rallied together. And a lot of my neighbors, I don't even know. Um, like I said, I just moved back 10 years ago. And um, there's a lot of new people in the Valley compared to when my family first moved here in 1962. But I am getting to know my neighbors. We've rallied together um, through fighting off that subdivision. Shelley shares her perspectives on the new laws under HB 599. I don't think people, maybe even the legislators, knew what they were voting for at the time because I've sat in those council public meetings. Um, some of the legislators themselves were asking questions about it, including the sponsor of the bill. And so I don't think they really knew at the time the ramifications of this bill. Maybe they did. I don't know. And, you know, it kind of goes back really to the constitutionality of it. Um, You know, we're guaranteed a clean environment, including water and air through our very constitution. You know, this will affect that as well as, you know, which is even more sacred to me is the Hellgate Treaty. And if that's what we have to rely on to, you know, if this ends up to be a court battle or, you know, however this plays out, I think those treaty rights are first and foremost because it is within the reservation boundaries. We 
have gone to the Lake County Commissioners and asked for a letter of support to DEQ requesting a public hearing. And that's kind of the stage we're at now is just still requesting a public hearing so that DEQ can hear from the neighbors. You know, there is problems with the process, you know, like any new law, there's always bugs to be worked out. But my feeling is that we just need to work out those bugs before they issue any more permits. This is a long lasting, this has long lasting effects in our valley, you know, not just to the animals and the water and the air, but to the human beings. I, I really feel like it's a, a public health, a community health issue. Uh, well, right now we're in the midst of fire season or, you know, there's times when the air gets pretty chunky around here, you know, there's ashes on our cars in our driveway or and so for some of us, you know, it's affected our, our long-term health, you know, decreased lung capacity. And I don't think an asphalt plant is going to positively contribute to our health. So that's a big concern. Shelley shares her perspective on what it has been to be a part of the Friends of the Jocko group. What that experience has been to be involved in rallying neighbors and community members and trying to navigate this layered process and just how all-consuming this work has become. But when I first got involved, I, I believe I heard first heard of it through social media. And, you know, some of my neighbors aren't on social media. So my neighbors don't have the internet. So we're looking at, you know, other ways to get the word out besides social media and the Shark Vista News. So we've been having, you know, small community meetings. We haven't had a large community meeting yet. In you know the whole town of Arlie, like I know we can because the people rally for causes like this. As Shelley mentioned, the Flathead Reservation and Arlie area specifically has been subdivided more and more. Well, really for the past 130 years, but ramping up more so lately. A very recent proposal of a 99 home subdivision in this area was defended off largely by local community action. But nothing is to keep another developer from proposing yet another subdivision tomorrow or yet another industrial development. I ask Shelley if she thinks there are things about this area that make it particularly susceptible to become a revolving door of proposed high-impact development. So we have seen a lot of newcomers to the Jocko Valley and the Flathead Indian Reservation in general You know, we've seen a lot of climate change refugees. Just to add here, climate refugees refers to a variety of human situations around the world right now, but also includes those from other states within the U.S. that are facing harsh droughts, increased intensity coastal storms, and other impacts of climate change in their own states. Side note, while Montana may be seen as having more of an abundance of water, much of the state is and has been in a multi-year drought status. In the last couple years, we've seen COVID refugees just flocking to Montana. And, you know, there's there's only so much capacity here with the water. Our water table is the main concern here. You know, people, people have discovered Montana nationally, and they're coming from all over the country. So, you know, that's a concern. But I think two things. One... It's a reservation and there are tribal laws which need to be adhered to. The second thing is 
the potential for zoning. We haven't looked into this. We discussed it briefly when we went to the county commissioners, but there are possibilities there, both with the county and with the tribe. And then lastly, the, the thing that is a very precious commodity in some people's eyes, but to us, it's the, you know, the lifeblood of Mother Earth, and that's the water. We need to protect the water. You know, I've been to the Southwest, I've been to California, I've heard their climate change concerns. They're in a very different situation than we are. But who's to say that with, you know, the extreme global warming situation that we're in, that we're not going to be in that same um, situation in the next couple of years with, you know, a scarcity of water. A big component, for example, with our water compact was not just water for the irrigators and the agricultural producers but for the fisheries we are fishermen we are fisher people and even when i read back on some of the historical documents regarding our tribe there's elders that say we were we were so rich the fish were just flowing through the river there were so many fish and we we never had to want for for fish and now um like i said we're trying to restore our basic uh, food for us and that's the bull trout when you go to our aboriginal territory just south of here in the missoula valley the clark fork river is there's a fish advisory we cannot fish we cannot eat the fish out of the Clark Fork anymore. And truth be known, I won't eat any fish except in the high mountain lakes in our primitive area just because of that. So we need to protect the water above all things. These restrictions on consuming the fish that Shelley is mentioning is due to toxin levels found in the rivers as a result of various human activities, including past and present industrial activity. As Native people, we were given those original instructions to talk for those who can't, and those include our relatives, the fish, the water, even the rocks. And so I take that responsibility very seriously as a bitter Salish woman, as someone that has five generations in her family. You know, I want my great-granddaughter to enjoy the beauty of this area as much as I did growing up. You know, I'll do whatever it takes to to fight for that and to protect it for all, not just my family, but for the whole of the community. I think that cuts to the core of this particular issue is, you know, as, as tribal people, sometimes we, you know, we think differently. We have different worldview about thinking about the community as a whole, and not individual gain or, or capitalism. And so it's it's just a dichotomy there. It's like two different worldviews. And so we're trying to, you know, speak out for the whole, the community, the whole entire landscape. So Yeah, thank you for that. You know, I'm just curious, as far as you know, what you've heard of other folks in the area, you know, where, where do you feel like consensus lies? Like, of course, there's might be folks who just 
aren't concerned, period, even though they know about it? Um, or does it seem to be a pretty large consensus that those who do know about it aren't supportive of it? So that's kind of, we're kind of in the mode of, you know, gauging what that, what the overall feeling is of the community. I think okay. a lot of times we lead very separate lives, you know, not, and I'm not speaking of just the native and the non-native neighbors. I'm just talking of, you know, people that live here that commute to Missoula and, you know, walk and forth every day. And we're all very busy people and we're kind of siloed up and maybe we don't even wave at our neighbors on the road anymore. But I believe that the people that I've talked to are all very concerned about this and the long-term effects that it's going to have for a community. I think there is a, a group of people that just don't know you know, they're not engaged in social media. And then I think there's also a small group that um, is employed by this particular family or leases land to them or from them. And I know it's caused a uh, strain on those relationships for people that are against it. I've seen it on the county road, people that don't wave anymore because of this mm-hmm. issue. I've seen it um, on social media where people are getting into Facebook fights over it. And I think, you know, there's people that just rely on those of us that, that have the energy and the wherewithal to fight it. So I think a lot of times people would just sit back and say, yeah, I'm, I'm against this, but, you know, they just don't have the the energy to to be involved they they know that someone else will do it um but when the time comes and we all need to stand up you know that's that's the time when you know hopefully many of them will rally with us but right now we're in i guess just getting the word out to the whole community to see where everybody stands and what their particular concerns are you know maybe it is their their employment you know, I understand that, but I think that, you know, as a community, sometimes we have to make those compromises and we have to make those sacrifices for for the long haul, you know, and hopefully everybody thinks like that, like what is going to be here for my grandkids. You know, we will tackle this in the next legislative session, but hopefully that won't be too late for this particular permit. Exactly. Yeah. And any other final messages that you want to put out there, either um, for your own community, um, for folks in the Jocko or statewide, um, any other specifically to this project or, you know, for general development pressures that folks are seeing all over? Yes, I would just encourage, you know, people to get involved at whatever level they can for whatever their, their concerns are, but to keep in mind that, you know, this is, 157 acre proposed gravel pit and asphalt plant that's going to affect the the water of the Jocko Valley, the air, the wildlife, the birds, the fish, the land would have, you know, noise, dust, traffic concerns, all of that. And people, you know, need to, to really stand up and, and protect what they believe in. And it's an unfortunate that, you know, it is going to pit some neighbors against other neighbors. 
that really is unfortunate. But you think about why people moved to the Jocko Valley in the first place. What attracted them here? You know, we had this conversation the other day about um, how the Buddha Garden got established. You know, someone had a vision. They had a dream about this place, that it was a very sacred place. And so they bought their property and developed what they did. And, you know, a lot of us live here because because of the beauty and just the the peacefulness of it and the serenity and the, and the cleanliness of it. So I think if that's something that, you know, people need to think long and hard about that and make those decisions to, to protect it if that's, if they want to sustain that for the future. And just some updates from Shelley and Jennifer. The Friends of the Jocko Group were present at a meeting held between the CSKT Tribal Council and DEQ on September 29th. Friends of the Jocko asked DEQ about holding a public hearing in Arli, and they replied that it wasn't allowable under the law. Friends of the Jocko also asked about conducting an environmental impact study, and DEQ replied that it didn't rise to that level. Shelley responded that Arli was considered a, quote, cultural property, so she believed it did rise to that level. As folks voiced their concerns, Shelley said DEQ was taking notes and hopes their concerns were heard. Shelley shared with us also that the room was packed with students from the Two Eagle River School from the Tribal History and Government class. She said three of the students bravely got up and spoke against the asphalt plant. As the future leaders of this area, and as residents who are looking at their own generation's role as stewards of their community and environment, their input is something to take seriously. And now here is Jennifer Nochen with her final calls to action for folks. I think just asking all of the residents of Montana to be aware of this particular issue and when the next legislator conven- legislature convenes to ask your legislators to fix this really bad law. And now back to Ann Hedges and Melissa Newts of MEIC. I ask them for some closing thoughts and calls to actions for all of you listening. I think there's a couple things that people should do. If they live in an unzoned area, they should talk to their neighbors about getting zoning in place before a, a developer comes to their community. You know, don't wait. Because as soon as a developer asks for a pre-application meeting with the state, they have a right (laughs) to mine that trumps your personal property rights. So get those citizen-initiated zoning districts in place. Um, It doesn't have to be countywide, but those are districts that can be done on a a smaller community scale. And they they can limit hours of operation of industrial operations through zoning. Um, But they have to do that in advance before there's a threat. The second thing that people should do is talk to their legislators and they should tell their legislators they want this law fixed, that this could happen to them and it is not in the public interest as the law is written right now. And their legislators should support changes to this law to at least claw back a little of what we had before last session. So I I would encourage people to talk to their elected officials so that when a bill is proposed to try to undo some of these wrongs, uh, we have a better group of legislators who are educated, who understand 
how this is potentially going to affect their community and why changes in the law are necessary for long-term sustainability of their communities. The more people know that this is out there, the better off we are <laughs> um, as far as changing our current system. The system is just broken. It, it creates a class system in this state where unless you're a developer, you are second, a second class citizen and the constitution doesn't apply to you. We have a right to participate. We have a right to know. We have a right to a clean and helpful environment under Montana's constitution. All those rights have been limited or taken away from people in this most recent iteration of the law. And that just shouldn't be acceptable to anyone. It just shouldn't. I was gonna follow up with what Ann said and the constitution in the seventies, it really spelled out the solution for Montana. And that's the public being involved and the public having access to information before decisions are made. So the public being able to inform the decision is the solution in Montana, right? And think of what that constitution was born from. I don't need to retell the story of the Copper Kings because we all know it if we live here, but that I think is the solution is public involvement. And when the public can speak for their own community, then it will become clear where things should or should not go to lessen the impacts to people and the ecosystem. The mm -hmm. Copper Kings have been replaced I mean, it really, it's the same attitude that the, the company should be in charge of our destiny. And we rejected that once. And now it is insidiously worked its way to be our system <laughs> for people who live outside of town. You know, the Copper King phenomenon didn't disappear. It just transformed into something else. And this is part of that. Thank you so much to Ann Hedges, Melissa Newts, Jennifer Nochin, and Shelley Fiant for speaking with us. You can find out more information and contact MEIC for further resources at meic.org. Find out more about the efforts of the Friends of the Jocko group at friendsofthejocko.org. That's Jocko, J-O-C-K-O. You can donate to support their efforts and find out how to get involved. These links and others linking to various articles on this issue are in this episode's show notes. Thank you all so much for listening. We encourage you to share this episode with others and subscribe to the Stories for Action podcast to hear more stories that create connections and encourage you to find your role for positive impact. Find out about all of our work, including films and communications consulting at storiesforaction.org, where you can also support our work with a tax-deductible contribution. And check us out on Instagram and Facebook at Stories for Action. Thank you so much for being a part of our community, where our mission is to use the power of storytelling to create human connection and advance a thriving planet for all. <laughs>